We're going to be talking over the next few weeks about this word called passion. Now, if you've been in the church or if you happen to grow up in maybe a more formal denomination of the church other than the church of God, you may know that every year there is a week that the church calls Passion Week, and it is the week before Easter. And basically, the word passion has to do with three words as it's translated from the Latin. Um, basically, as they, as they came up with that word, these three words are what you saw up there, suffer, endure, and permit. The word passion, as we think about it generally, doesn't mean what we think it means. Um, it's easy to be passionate about anything, right? I mean, I'm passionate about coffee. Can I just be honest about that? I, I love coffee that tastes like coffee. None of this, you know, they call it, I don't want to offend anybody, but they call it church coffee, where it kind of has almost the, the color of coffee, but there's really no flavor like coffee. I, I don't know. It's a, apparently it's a thing. Not here. Here we make stout coffee. Of course, um, my coffee will kill people. Um, other people just stay away from it. I, I'll never forget the first time. Oh no, her name just jumped right out of my head. Bless her heart. Huh? Not Sally. Nope. Oh, bless her heart. Used to sit right back here. Anyway, I, the, one of our older, dear older saints, she's gone to be with Jesus now. But anyway, Greg went and got her a cup of my coffee instead of getting it from the kitchen like he was supposed to. And she literally poured half of it out and watered it down that much because she, I am passionate about coffee tasting like coffee. I think it should taste like coffee. There's lots of things to be passionate about. I'm passionate about my family. And that's a little more serious. That's a little more appropriate thing to be passionate about. I'm passionate about coaching. I coach basketball. I used to coach softball till my own children wouldn't listen to me anymore. Then you have to find another coach. How many of you have experienced that? You can coach your kids to a certain point, then they quit listening, and suddenly it's time for somebody else to take over. But I love coaching because not just because I love the sport, but because I love investing in young people. I think it's important for people to do that. I think that sports can teach good lessons. Unfortunately, most of the sports world these days is not necessarily teaching positive lessons, but sports can be be another venue, an opportunity for us to teach. So I'm passionate about that. But I think sometimes we forget that the passion that Jesus went through was that he suffered and he suffered a great deal. He endured that suffering through the whole process of his trials and his conviction and all that happened to him during that week. And, and he permitted it all. It didn't just happen to him. He allowed it to happen. During the last week of his life, Jesus experienced these three things in unbelievable ways. And some of you will say, Pastor, it's okay though, because we know in the end he dies, yes, but he rises again. And it's this glorious celebration. And everybody loves Easter Sunday. I love the Easter songs. I love the Easter celebration. And trust me, when Easter comes, we will celebrate. In fact, I might even turn Pastor Chris loose and not even preach that day. We'll just sing resurrection songs the whole day. Maybe even a couple of the older ones, right? How many of you would like some of the older ones? I'm in that boat. Maybe we'll force Pastor Chris to sing a hymn or something. I don't know. Anyway, we're going to celebrate. It'll be a great day. But let's not go there yet. Let's not just do what all Americans do and skip past the bad part right to the good part, right? As far as I know, Americans aren't the first to, to coin that phrase, you should eat dessert first, but boy, we sure like that philosophy, don't we? I think sometimes in our lives, in America especially, we have a tendency to forget about the pain and the suffering, and we want to jump right to the end when everything's okay. And you know what? Jesus did die so that everything would be okay. But before he rose again, he went through all of these other things. He didn't just die so that we died, 
as the culmination of his life's work to teach us who God is, to show us the love of God, and then finally to, to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins and to set an example for us. Because he suffered. I got to tell you, we too, as his followers, will probably suffer. Jesus said, listen, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. There will be suffering if you follow Christ. If he endured suffering, then we will have to endure. There will be times where we have to walk through hardship in order to follow Jesus. And sometimes, even though we don't want to permit bad things to happen in our lives, we need sometimes for those things to happen. And we need to allow them to happen because only in the difficult times can one of the lessons that God needs to teach us. And so we will permit, as Jesus did, some of those things to happen. And it won't feel good. Can you just just get your mind around that for a minute? Not everything that is good feels good. I should make you say that, huh? Not everything that is good and leads to good things in your life feels good in the moment. Sometimes there are periods when we need to suffer, when we need to endure. And by doing that, we learn. Jesus did not die for us so that we could feel good, nor did he die for us so that we could be safe. In fact, the final week of his life, he did everything he could to make himself unsafe. Amen? Let's talk about that today. That's what I want to cover today. In the next few weeks, we're going to go over some of the events of the Passion Week, the week leading up to Jesus' death. Today, I want to set the stage for how it all happened. We're going to be covering material from Matthew chapters 21 through 23. I'm not going to read a specific part to you right now. Those are the chapters we're in. And I want to challenge you this week as part of your Lent homework to read those chapters. In a little bit, I'll show you some specifics that I want you to look for. In chapters 21 through 23, we read kind of the the setting of the stage for Passion Week. And it begins with the triumphal entry, right? Palm Sunday. When, you know, when I was a kid, we used to buy palm branches from the local florist. I can't imagine they ever sold those any other time of the year. But we always went out and got palm branches from the local florist. And all of us kids who were supposed to just wave them as we walked in or did whatever processional, you know what we did with them? We hit each other. Constantly, we just whacked each other back and forth. We were terrible children in church. It was bad. But, you know, during Palm Sunday, they threw their coats on the ground, and Jesus came riding in a donkey, and everybody in the city came out to greet him. You know why? Because Jesus was a rock star. He was absolutely a celebrity. Even though they didn't have all the, the social media and the stuff we have today, word of mouth still traveled fast. And people had heard about the things Jesus did. And they heard that Jesus had the ability to heal any disease or, or cure any illness or any sickness. And so they heard about that. And man, who wouldn't want to see power over the human body to heal it? And, and then they heard that, that he could provide food where there was no food. Remember the, the 5,000 out on the hillside and they didn't have any food to feed them. So they collected the five loaves and two fish, five loaves and three. Did I get it right? I don't know. Anyway, there's a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread and they start handing it out and suddenly there's 12 baskets full of food left over after everybody ate. Man, I wish my cupboard would reproduce like that. I have teenagers in the house. Amen? That just doesn't happen for me. And they heard, wow, even where there was no food, this 
And so they heard about that. And then, of course, they, they saw him standing up to the religious leaders who, quite frankly, back in that day, were, were holding down the common people with the, 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 the difficult thumb. They, they had everybody under their thumb, and they were manipulating them and, and using them. And they saw Jesus standing up to them. And, and finally, the last straw was this. He, he actually raised a man from the dead. Anybody remember the name of that man? Lazarus. I almost said Zacchaeus. Man, I had... Lazarus, they, they both have Z's in them, it's all right. Lazarus, he, called, he stood before the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And after three days being in the tomb, Lazarus comes walking out. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if a guy can heal any disease, feed people who are hungry, and raise the dead, I'm voting for him for president, amen? That's just my guy, man, I'm sticking with him. And that's That's what everybody thought. This is our king. This is the guy we want leading us. Let's make him our king. And they welcomed him like a king. I'll tell you what, the rulers of Rome, or at least the rulers in the city of Jerusalem that were representatives of Rome, must have been pretty nervous on that day. Because when you hear the Jews shouting out, Hosanna, blessed be the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they understood what that meant. The people were calling for a change of regime. They were looking for Jesus to replace their rulers and to rule them with the same constraint that David did in the Old Testament. And Rome must have been nervous. I know that the Jewish leaders were because almost immediately they become suspicious of him. So Jesus comes pouring into the city with this crowd and this throng and all Jesus has to do if he wants to rule the world is just keep sending out a few good tweets a day that don't offend anybody. Amen? Show up at the right places at the right time. Shake hands with the right politicians. Make the right people happy. And he's now the new emperor of maybe the Roman Empire, or he could call it whatever he wanted. Because he had the power. He had the support. He could have done it. But you know what Jesus does instead? He decides to make himself unsafe. He does what I like to call poking the bear, right? You ever heard that terminology? If if you ever run across a sleeping bear in the wilderness, don't poke it. Why? Because it'll eat you, right? Or at least make sure there's somebody there that's slower than you if you're going to poke the bear, right? Don't do that. And Jesus does it. Look what he does. I want to just call your attention to the scripture. And again, it's about three chapters long. Jesus goes through the process of methodically making everybody angry with him makes himself unsafe. The first thing that he does is he comes into the temple and basically goes into the temple and gets angry because he sees the money changers in the temple. Now, just to give a long story short, basically the people who ran the money changing stations, which were responsible for changing currency from the currency of the common person to the currency that was used in the temple, were basically cheating people. They were giving them a poor transfer rate or uh, what do they call that? Uh, A... exchange rate, poor exchange rate, and so they were literally cheating people out of money. To make matters worse, if you brought your own sacrifice, nine times out of ten, they would deem your sacrifice not worthy, find some fault with it, so that you would have to buy their sacrifices, which were, of course, slightly more expensive than you'd find anywhere else. Kind of like, you know, when you go to Tiger Ballpark, you know, you can buy a 50-cent hot dog for $25 or some ridiculous thing. It's like they've got you there, and they're just going to get every penny they can out of you. That's kind of the idea of what the people running the temple were doing. And Jesus gets mad. 
He says, you know what? This is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And so he starts flipping tables over. He grabs a whip and starts... It's the only time we see Jesus working out his aggression on other people. And he's whipping the tables and whipping the people and chasing them out and, and just makes this giant, what my grandmother would have called a ruckus, right? And all of Jerusalem erupts. Can you believe what Jesus did? He just tore apart the temple. Isn't he supposed to be the son of God? The temple is sacred. How dare he do such a thing? So he goes out of the city and he comes back in the next day. And when he gets back to the temple the next day, of course, the, the religious leaders are a little happier now. He off a whole lot of people and did some things that were very questionable. So they absolutely have the reason. So they start questioning Jesus. And in the process, Jesus teaching them in answer to their questions. And he gives them a couple of parables. I won't go into detail, but one of them is about two sons, for instance. And those of you who have children probably have experienced this scenario that Jesus lays out. Basically, the father comes to one son and says, hey, I need you to go do something for me. And the son says, sure, dad, be glad to. So the father walks away and the son (laughs) doesn't do it. How many of you have experienced that? Go do this. Okay, dad. And then you walk away and they completely ignore everything you said. Well, then he goes to the other son and says, hey, I need you to go do this. He says, no, I I really don't want to. I'm not going to do it. And so the father walks away. Now, that's not how it would have ended if I was the dad. But anyway, the father walks away. And later on, the son who said, I'm not going to do it, changed his mind and went ahead and did it. The other son who said, I'll absolutely do it, decided not to do it. And Jesus poses the question to to the Jewish leaders. He says, who in this story do you think the father was most pleased with? Well, the son, of course, that did what he was told. Not the one who said he would do it, but the one who did it. And Jesus wagged his finger in their face and said, this is you. You say you're going to do one thing, but you don't do it. You say you're going to serve God, but you don't do it. You're all talk and no action. Now, if you're one of the Jewish elite that's hearing words, how happy would that make you to have Jesus doing that right now? And he goes on. Other parables. He tells another parable that has a similar kind of theme about the evil farmers who kill the farmer's son. These farmers are farming this land, and instead of giving the land over what's due to him, he sends his son to collect it, and they kill the son. So, of course, the landowner comes, and he wipes out the tenants, and he gets new ones. And Jesus looks at them and said, you're the tenant because you've misused what God gave you. Once again, making them very happy. Jesus is so politically correct, it hurts, isn't he? He's just making everybody happy. He goes on, he tells another one about a wedding feast where, and he alludes to the fact that the Jews are all invited to this wedding feast, but they're so busy with their lives, they don't want to attend, and so they don't show up. And so the the master sends out and goes and finds people in the highways and byways, the poor, anybody he can find to bring them in instead of them to be at this feast. And now they start getting angry, and so they decide, listen, it's time for us to ask some questions. It's time for us to try to trip him up. So they come to Jesus, and they say, you know, we, we've got a question that we want you to answer. We want you to answer, answer truthfully. Is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, I know that sounds like an out-of-the-blue kind of question, but they had him, you see, because if he said, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jews would be very angry with him because they didn't want to pay taxes. How many of you want to pay taxes? Raise your hand. If you like paying taxes, you're all liars. None of you like paying taxes. I don't even care if you do like the president or if you don't. Nobody wants to pay taxes. That's just the way it is. And they didn't want to pay taxes, but they had to. And if Jesus says pay taxes, the Jews are going to say, well, he's apparently working with the Romans. We don't like him. 
don't pay your taxes, then the Romans would come and arrest him because he's sowing dissent and blah, blah, blah. They had him, right? And so they say, Jesus, do you think we should pay taxes? He says, give me a coin. And they give him a coin. He says, whose picture's on the coin? Well, Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, or give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Now, ironically, interestingly enough, the coin had the, the, the face of, of Caesar imprinted on it, so it belonged to Caesar. And since we have the imprint of God stamped on us, since we are made in his image, who do we belong to? Who do we belong to? You're allowed to say it out loud. Who do we belong to? We are his. Give to God what is God's. And we have the image of God stamped on us. So we're his. That's free. That's just a side. He traps them again, and they don't know what to say. And so they get into these other discussions about the most important commandment. Finally, down in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus starts really getting after them. I mean, he, he isn't telling parables anymore. He's flat out saying to them, straight up, this is how it is. Listen to some of the things Jesus dares to say to the church. Now, I'm going to start getting personal. This is the church of their day. Understand this. These are the religious leaders, the religious establishment, the people who follow Yahweh. They would be us back then. He says this to them as the church. Actually, he talks first to the people. He says, listen, see these people over here, see these religious leaders, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Because they're all talk and no action. They honor God with their words, but they do not follow through and do what they say they're going to do. Now imagine if you were a church leader and you heard Jesus saying that to the people in your church. Would that make you upset? Oh yeah, they were ticked. He goes on to say this, everything they do is for show. They love honor. They love to sit at the head of the table. They love to be called out and pointed to and said, wow, look at them. They love to be called rabbi, but I don't want you to call them rabbi. I don't want you to call them father or teacher because there's only one father and that is God. And there's only one teacher and that is me. He said, don't even call them that. The greatest among you must be called your servants. Have you heard Jesus talk about that before? The greatest among you must be servants. The church of God, the movement that we're a part of, used to reject titles because of this. They would never call their pastors reverend. They only called us a pastor or minister or brother because we rejected titles because we didn't believe that anyone should bear higher honor than anyone else. We just all have a different function in the church. And and friends, I believe that's a, a great way to look at things. I have a different job than you, but I'm no better than you in God's eyes. My, pa- my job is to stand up here and bore you. I'm- Pastor Chris's job is to get up here and inspire you. Monty's job is to inspire you in music wherever you might be. We all have a different role, but we're all on equal footing. That's what Jesus is getting at. Your servant, the servants among you should be the greatest. And then he points him out. He says, what sorrow awaits you. This is how he starts these statements. What sorrow awaits you, you religious leaders. It's not a good way to start a statement. He says, what sorrow awaits you because of this. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't go in and you don't let them go in. Wow. They're actually keeping people out of the kingdom. That's what he accuses them of. He says, you'll cross the land and the sea to make one convert, but then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you are. He actually says that in the scripture. 
He says, you swear by the things of earth and not the things of heaven that make them sacred. You tithe. Tithing means giving of your money, in case you don't know that. He says, you tithe, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, which he says are justice, mercy, and faith. Listen, if you're ever in doubt, fight for justice. Because God is on the side of justice. If you're ever in doubt, fight for mercy, show mercy, do whatever you can to inspire mercy in others because God is always on the side of mercy and he is always on the side of faith. If you're ever in doubt, justice, mercy, and faith, of course, love is another word for all of that. If you're ever in doubt, those things are important to God. He says you tithe, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. He said you're clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're filthy. You're like white-washed tombs. I don't think anybody in here is old enough to have whitewashed anything, are you? Do they still use that terminology? Doesn't that just mean to paint something? I don't know. I don't know what that is. I know Tom, didn't Huck Finn do that? Like I'm from another planet. Nobody heard those stories. Have you done it? Gordy's done it. Whitewash. What is it? It just simply means to make it look like brand new, right? Like, like my bathroom looked until we started using it again. Anyway, so you're like whitewashed tombs. Listen to what he says. This language is very specific. He said, on the, on the outside you're beautiful, but on the inside you're filled with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Boy, if you're hearing that and he's saying it to you, doesn't that make you just feel all warm and fuzzy inside? You're like a tomb with dead people in it. That's what he's saying to them. Oh my goodness. Jesus, what are you doing? He said, you build tombs for the prophets and your, that your ancestors killed and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. In other words, in the Old Testament, people killed the prophets because they spoke the words of God. And now people were, were raising up the prophets and saying, oh, they were such wonderful people, but they were the very ones that, whose ancestors killed them. And he said, you're about to do the same thing with me. You're going to someday, they'll raise up monuments to me, but you're the ones who are going to do what your ancestors did and kill the very messenger of God. They had no idea what he was talking about. Jesus basically gave it to them with no uncertain terms. And you know what? In those moments, he made himself very, very, very unsafe. Jesus didn't come to this earth to be safe. If he'd wanted to remain safe, He could have stayed at home with his mother Mary, who from all that we can tell from Scripture, loved him dearly. He would have carried on the family business and become a carpenter like his father. He could have lived to the ripe old age of, I don't know what the life expectation back there was, but at least 50-something, right? Instead of dying at the age of 30. But instead of living that life, he understood that he had a calling. He was sent by God. He wasn't called. He wasn't sent here to be safe. He was sent by God for a mission. And his mission was to show people who God was and to display the love of Christ or love of God in tangible ways and then to go to the cross of Calvary and purchase your and my freedom from sin on the cross. Last week of his life started it anyway, making himself unsafe. And listen, I, I want as we prepare to celebrate the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week, all of the things that Jesus went through. I want us to start the same way. I want you to understand something this morning, and that is this, that Jesus did not die so that you could be safe. He died so that you could be sent. We have a job to do. 
God has called us not, not to be safe, not to be comfortable, not, not to have everything that we want and everything that we need, not to be able to revel in our own successes. He called us to be sent because we have a job to do. What is that job? It is to be witnesses to everybody that we know of the love of a God who wants them to become his children once again. So before we celebrate Easter, I want us to take a look at this list that he gave to the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of his time. I want you this week, some of you won't do it, I know. Some of you are bad at homework. Some of you will, maybe a few. I want you to look at, at this passage, Matthew chapter 23. And I want you to look at the list that he gave to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of all the things that they were messing up. And I want you to look at that from the perspective of your own life. Are we as a church, are we as Christians doing any of those things? Now, if you're listening today, if you're here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a member of this church, I got to tell you, most of this sermon today is probably for the people who attend here, but you can listen in and you know, maybe you can help hold us accountable down the road somewhere. But for those of you that follow Jesus and are a part of the church, I don't ever want the things that Jesus said about the early religious day to ever be true of us. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so before we begin to celebrate Easter, I would love for you to look at this list and be transparent with yourself and say, God, is there any way that I'm doing any of these things? You know, am I shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces by something that I said or something that I did or some attitude that I hold that I need to let go of? Am I keeping people from the kingdom? Am I willing to, to fund missionaries across the world, but, but maybe um, only am interested in converting them into Americans and not just Christians? You know what I'm saying? Maybe we're making them uh, you know, in our image and creating in them a new ideology, but is that ideology we're converting them to actually look like Jesus, or does it just look like us? You know, there's a lot of missionaries that have told me that, that after being on the mission field, one of the hardest things in the world is to make sure that they're converting people to follow Jesus, not just to follow America. It's hard because our ideology is so deep ingrained. Are, are you maybe one of those people who gives your tithe every single week? And by the way, we appreciate that. But maybe you've forgotten that God's real concern is that People who are downtrodden are lifted up. The people who are captives become free. The people who are hungry are fed. God always wishes for his people to remember the more important aspects of the law, as Jesus said, justice, mercy, and faith. Maybe you will look at your lives and say, you know what, I look great on the outside. I, I clean up well for Sunday morning. But on the inside, sometimes there's just some horrible things that come out, and I don't know where they're coming from. Friends, can I just confess to you that during all of my construction projects, when things get, went wrong, I yelled a lot. I yelled a lot. My wife can attest to that. There was one point where I think she was afraid for my salvation. You try to hooking a tub drain up after you just set the tub on top of it. I don't know who invented that system, but it's a terrible system. There were some things that came out of me that I am ashamed of. How about you? Are there things down inside that, that, that to God look like dead bones that need to be rooted out of your life so that you can live the life he's called you to live? I want you to use this scripture to look at your life. And don't be 
putting stuff on Facebook about how somebody else needs to fix it. You worry about you. And as we go through this list, my hope is that that you may suffer just a little bit because hopefully that suffering that you're feeling or that guilt that, that God maybe brings in or the things that he shows you, they may lead you through a process of suffering. But when you come out on the other side of that suffering, you will be more ready than ever to be sent by God, to do the work of God, and to become a disciple of Jesus and not just a quote unquote Christian. I really hope that this Easter, by the time we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, we will have all suffered a little bit with Christ. We will all have endured a little bit with Christ. And we will all permit it to happen because we understand that if he went through it, then we probably have to go through it. So your homework. I keep wanting to say Psalms, but it's Matthew 23. Read it, look at it, compare your life. And I, I, my hope is that, that you will understand, as Jesus said, as the Father sent him, so Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You and I are not called to be safe. We're called to be sent. Pray with me. Father, it's not easy sometimes to study the last week of Jesus' life because there's so much injustice there. He was framed, he was beaten, he was treated unfairly and every bone within us wants him to rise up and say, I'm innocent and then to just beat down his enemies. That's what we want to see. We, we want it to be the ending of every movie that we like. But Jesus, as the scriptures say, was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't fight for his rights because he understood that in order to win salvation for us he had to permit what was happening to him he had to suffer he had to endure and i fear lord that that here in america especially where we have things so good that that we've come to the conclusion that christianity means comfort and that is not the example of scripture most of jesus disciples were killed for their faith and yet did so willingly because they understood that God didn't call them to be safe. He called them to be sent. And they were willing to walk forward in the life that God gave them to live. I pray that you would help us to be willing to do likewise. And God, it is, it is not my wish that anybody here would have to suffer or endure or permit that happening in their lives. But Lord, we know that, that Jesus already said that if it happened to him, it would happen to us. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared and we need to be willing to face it as Jesus faced it with calm assurance that if suffering, that on the other end of that suffering, there will be celebration. And Lord, it'll be so much better because we've been through what we've been through. God, I pray for that kind of celebration on Easter Sunday morning this year in 2021. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.